Well, friends, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 148 this morning for the final uh, installment, this little series we've been doing this month on what it means to be human from the Psalms. We spent most of the spring talking about what it means to be human from Genesis 1 to 3. What we've been trying to do this month is show that, that the themes from Genesis actually come up in Israel's praises, that, that the way God has made us is, is directly tied to the praise God has, has made us to give to him. We've been trying to trace that out in psalm after psalm through the, this month, building to Psalm 148, a wonderful place to summarize and conclude what we've seen so far. While you're, while you're turning over to Psalm 148, I want to tell you about the first concert that I went to after moving to Nashville. I've noticed that that's like a party thing now. At a, at a dinner party, you're, you're typically asked, what's the best concert you've ever been to live? I've been asked that a few times. I don't have a good answer to that question. Maybe I just haven't been to the right concerts, but I, I can tell you the first concert I ever went to in Nashville. It was in 2004, it was in December, it was a year after we had moved here for grad school, and it was at the Ryman Auditorium where we paid to hear Handel's Messiah. This was way back before the Skirmerhorn Symphony Center was built. The Ryman was about the best we could hope for in terms of a venue, but Lindsay and I did not know what limited view meant. You know, we were in grad school and cash straps, I couldn't resist the discount. Man, they had us over right by the wall. I mean, like in a pew right next to the wall, underneath the balcony, looking down the line of the wall where we could barely see the, the people standing at the very front of the Ryman stage. It wasn't a great seat. But my goodness, could we hear those people on that stage and what they were up to. This stage, I mean, it's a big stage, and it was full to the brim. It had an orchestra full of world-class players each doing their best on the instruments they'd trained on. It had a choir full of what could have been world-class soloists now singing as part of a massive chorus. And then it had a, a sort of first string of soloists who were there to perform the, the, the solo pieces throughout the piece. And they, these guys were all working together. I don't know how many it was, tens at least, maybe 100 people. It was a big group. All of them world-class and all of them working together at their absolute best on a piece of music that, honestly, I can't imagine being any better than what it is. There's something that I've never experienced in any other context that I do experience anytime I hear that many world-class musicians all working together to do one thing, when that one thing they're working together to do is worthy of their talents. All of this happened, of course, on the direction of yet another world-class person, a conductor who stood there, having studied the music, knowing exactly what to bring out of every person that's up there and at exactly the right time. Now, now why am I going on and on about this classical concert I went to almost 20 years ago? I'm going on and on about it because I think it's actually a really nice and tight metaphor for what our text this morning tells us about the whole world, for the way that the psalmist, the one who wrote Psalm 148, from the way he sees everything. Psalm 148 sees the world as a vast choir performing a single set of music aimed at the praise of the one who made it all. And the way that Psalm 148 sees the whole world gives us a wonderful and clear window into what it means to be humans. To understand what it means to be human, for you to understand what your life is for, 
for you to know why God has given you the wonderful capacities he's given you as those who were made in his image, you need to know where you fit in the vast and worldwide and universal symphony of praise that is going on and will go on forever. I want to show you that from Psalm 148. And I think the best way to get there is to come over this psalm three separate times. We're going to squeeze it like an orange and see what juice we can get out of it on each pass over it. I want to show you by coming over Psalm 148, the choir. I want you to help you identify who it is that's part of this symphony of praise. I want to come back over it and show you the music. What is it that this choir is singing about God? And then we'll come over it one more time and I'll show you the conductor where you'll see your own role put on display in a way that you can use even now, today. I want to show you the the choir. I want to show you the music. I want to show you the conductor. First, let's read the psalm together. Would you stand with me? In honor of God's word, while I read Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, Fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. You can be seated. This psalm begins and ends with a call to worship. Did you notice that? Praise the Lord, the first line and the last line. And in between those two calls to worship, section by section, This psalmist calls on one after another after another part of the created world to do what it was made to do. I want to walk you through these one by one. Right now, we're tagging members of this great choir of praise. He begins in verses 1 to 6 with the choir of heaven. That's where he looks first. He looks up. He starts with with the heavens, the heights where the angels dwell. He calls on the angels in verse 2 and all their hosts to praise the Lord. Then from the angels, he moves to the heavenly bodies in verse 3. He says, sun, moon, shining stars, you praise him too. And from the bodies that live in the heavens, then he turns to the heavens themselves. He's imagining them as they appear to us, like a vast sea of blue, all crying out to the God who hung them right where they are. Praise him. Praise the Lord. What's the psalmist doing here? When he looks to the, to the heavens and calls on the heavens to praise the Lord, 
he's, he's actually trying to pick a little bit of a fight. Because he knows that in the ancient world, these were things that were worshipped. Israel's neighbors believed that the sun and the moon and the stars, they were all divine. They, they did believe that there were heavenly beings filling the skies that, that, that they should worship in order to, to get help from them at the right times. The psalmist knows better. The psalmist is saying, these things you worship, they worship or ought to worship the one true God who hung them right where they are. They were made for him. Then in verse seven, he turns from the choir of, of heaven to the choir of earth. Praise the Lord from the earth, he says now. He turns to the, to the great sea creatures, probably thinking here of whales that, that leap and crash near the surface of the deep. And then he turns to the deeps, probably thinking of, of this dark and shadowy and mysterious realm that, that people in the ancient world like himself could barely see into. From the water, he turns to the fire. Verse eight, hail, snow, mist, stormy wind. He's, he's thinking about these ancient elements that were seen to be divine. And he's calling on them to worship the God who controls them all. From these elements, he turns to the mountains and to the hills, these massive sources of inspiration, places that the ancient peoples would go to worship, places that they saw as full of divinity. He says, these mountains praise the Lord, or they ought to. He goes to the, to the, to the animals from there, wild beasts on one hand and livestock on the other, from the lions to the domesticated cows. All of them he calls to praise the Lord, verse 10. He imagines creeping things, you know, like snakes and worms and flying birds that soar in the sky. All of them, praise the Lord, he says. And then trees, fruit trees that put out flowers in their season on one hand, cedar trees or evergreens that stay green all year long on the other hand. And finally, at the very end of the list, he comes to humankind. He sees humans as the culmination of all of it. Humans for him are the stars of this earthly choir. And he calls on all of them. Look with me at verse 11. Kings of the earth, they ought to praise God. They're used to getting praised, aren't they? He calls on them to praise the Lord. And all people, all the common people, they're supposed to praise the Lord too. They get their breath from him. Princes and rulers of the earth, all of them. Praise the Lord. The young men and, and the maidens, men and women, praise the Lord, verse 12. Old men and children, young and old, praise the Lord, verse 12. There is no one who's left out of this roster. And most of all, he calls on God's own special people, Israel, to praise the Lord because they know him best of all. Now, two things I want you to notice about this flyover from this description of this choir the first thing to notice about it is that, you know, this is maybe so simple as to be obvious, everything that exists, exists to praise God. That's what it's for. This, this psalm is meant as a, as a completely comprehensive catalog. No, he doesn't mention every one of the species, but you can see what he's doing. He's trying to create these contrasts to make sure you know he's talking about everybody from everywhere, everything, in every place. From top to bottom, from animate to inanimate, from big to little, everything that is, is for the glory of God. In this choir, everyone has a voice to raise and everyone has a song to sing. But, but here's the second thing to notice about this flyover. 
The second thing you should notice, it brings us to why we're looking at this psalm in a series that celebrates what it means to be a human. Humans have a very special role in this choir. Everything that exists exists to praise God. That's true. But humans have a very special role to play in this choir. This psalm, the way it plays out, it echoes Genesis 1 on purpose. Genesis 1 has a similar catalog that covers everything that was made, all of it made by God, all of it for his glory, but it builds to a crescendo. At the top of it, he makes humans, he makes men and women in his image and gives them a unique role in the world that he's made. This psalm echoes that. It it builds to the creation, or the calling rather, of all humans, no matter what stage of life, to praise the Lord who made them. It's as if the whole choir were, were the instruments and the background vocals just laying down track for the moment when the front men and women step up to the mic and sing their song. So why does he describe the choir of creation like that? What is our role? What's our role in this performance? That's the question we ought to be asking after one pass through the arc of this psalm. And a second pass or the same verses will bring us closer to an answer. Hopefully now you've seen clearly, here's the choir. It involves everybody. Everybody's got a voice. Now I want to show you the music. There are two places in this psalm where the attention shifts from who it is that's called to praise the Lord, you know, from this, this catalog of the things that God has made, to what it is they're supposed to praise him for. What it is about God that should draw out praise from all of us. From these two places, we get two beautiful songs of praise to God. The first one, a song that's sung by everything that exists, and the second one, a song that only a human could sing. The first song comes out in verses five and six. Look with me at verse five. He's He's been talking about the sun and the moon, the shining stars, about the heavens above, He's about to talk about the earth with its sea creatures and its deeps and its fire and hail and snow and mist. And right in the middle, he stops. And he says, let them praise the name of the Lord for, now he's going to give us the reason. Here's why they should praise him. And I'm going to sum up these two verses, verses five and six, with with the theme of this song. Simply that God is great. Everything that exists, exists to sing to God. God is great. Do you see it? He commanded, and they were created. Just by existing, the sun and the moon and the heavens they sit in, and the whales and the shrimp and the oceans they swim in, and the lions and the cows and the earth that they walk on, all of them point back to one who had the power to speak them into existence. That's Genesis 1. Let, the Lord said, let there be, and there was. It's not like he sat down with a Lego set, in other words, where he had all the pieces in front of him and he just had to to put them together in the right order. It isn't even like he sat down with a bucket of mixed up Legos where he didn't even have instructions and he just kind of out of his own mind created something cool with all of them. Both of those things would would point to him being a, a good creator, you know, an engineer in one hand or a really creative type on the other. But but he had nothing. With an, with, with an emptiness, a vast emptiness besides himself, he just speaks and boom, something not God exists. Let there be light, and there was light. Let the earth sprout forth, and it sprouts forth. That's what Genesis 1 teaches us. 
That's what this psalm calls, that's why this psalm calls for praise. But on top of this, verse 6 points us to another layer. The world praises the greatness of God, not just by sheerly existing, but by obeying the laws that he set. Verse 6 says he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree. He set a law, and it won't ever pass away. Can you see what he's saying there? He's, he's saying that, that all of these things that we see around us, the world operates according to an order that's intentional, that's designed by God and set in place. Only a great God could do that and hold it up the way that he has. In the old days, in the ancient times, they would look up at the sun and the moon and the stars, and they would navigate by them. They didn't have GPS. If you wanted to get across the sea from one place to another, you, you follow the stars. Why did that work? The psalmist is saying they're, they're always where they're supposed to be. They're following the rules that he gave them. They obey. Snow falls in winter at the proper temperature. Hail forms under certain predictable conditions. Fire burns according to the physical realities God designed and God deployed. In other words, verse 8, they all fulfill his word. When the forces of nature just do what they do, they're obeying the God who made them and they praise him. Friends, sometimes we, we can assume today that religion and Christianity on one side and science on another side are just two different things and not the best of friends. You know, as if, as if one side over here relies on faith and the other side relies on observation and experiments and hard-boiled reality. But the Bible just doesn't see it that way. Neither did some of, the, of history's most influential scientists. In fact, it's been a faith that this world belongs to God, and a faith that it operates according to good and wise rules that he set up by his design. It's been that faith that has driven so many of the world's most influential scientists to give their lives to studying this world. They believe that their brains ought to work because God made them to work and that this world ought to be predictable because God set it up to work in the way that it does. The first theme in this music of creation, to sum it all up, is that God is great. That's a message you can hear all around you if you pay attention. And it brings me to the second theme in this music of creation. This is a theme that emerges clearly when you do pay attention. It's a, a music that can only be made by humans and a music we were created to make back up to God. If everything else around us exists to say, God is great, only a human can say, God is good. Everything says, God is great. Only a human can say, God is good. And that's the praise we were born to offer. Let me show you. It, this theme comes out in the next section where the psalmist breaks off from who should praise the Lord and then once again switches over to why they should praise him or what they should praise him for. Uh, this time, that switch happens in the middle of a section that's about us as humans. So in verse 11, the psalmist turns to humans and calls on everyone to praise the Lord. And then in verse 13, he gives reasons let them praise the name of the Lord, just like he started first in verse 5. But in this case, the reason to praise him is that his name alone is exalted, and his majesty is above earth and heaven, and he's raised a horn for his people. What's that about? To say that his name alone is exalted 
is to talk about his reputation, what he's known for. He has got a reputation that's higher than anything or anyone else. To say that his majesty or his beauty is above all earth and heaven is to say that his majesty and his beauty is everywhere to be seen. It's to say, praise him because you see who he is through what he made. One of our favorite uh, shows over the years as a family has been uh, the BBC documentary series called Planet Earth. It's in a couple different series, and we've watched them all, and we love them. And one of the things that it's known for is, is going in and getting shots that no one had ever gotten before, sometimes of places on Earth that no one had ever been to before. And probably our favorite example of that, our favorite episode is the one on the deep seas. They developed these unbelievable uh, submarines that could handle the pressures of deeper seas than, any, than anyone else had ever explored before with, with cameras that could capture things and lighting that could, could brighten up creatures that had never been seen by human eyes before. There are some unbelievable things down there. I mean, things that are so grotesque looking that you think whoever made them has got to have a sense of humor. Have you guys ever seen an anglerfish? These weird teeth and this little lure that comes out of his head out in front of him and shines a light that, that gets prey to come to him so he can eat them and he swims in a really strange way because he doesn't really have great fins it's bizarre not exactly beautiful but but man somebody thought that up that took some creativity now that anglerfish had been down there for i don't know how many years and just by existing as it is that anglerfish gave praise to god it said, by its existence, God is great. But when the, when the BBC crew got down there with that submarine and they turned that light on and that camera was there to capture it, human eyes saw that thing for the first time. And when human eyes saw that thing, it became possible for us to say, God is good. Look at those colors. Look at that body design. Look at those teeth. How did he think of that? That's our role. The Bible tells us that the whole earth is full of his glory. That's Isaiah 6. But Habakkuk chapter 2 takes this idea one step for, further. And it says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. The earth has always been full of his glory. The deep seas that no one had ever visited have always been full of his glory. But when humans show up, the knowledge of the glory of God spreads all over the world. That's where we come in. We were put here to appreciate it and to echo it back to him. And the psalmist doesn't stop there. He doesn't just stop with, with this majesty or beauty that we can see above earth and heaven. He he then, in verse 14, goes to, to what else humans can know from this God. That, that he is not just creator, but, but he's also redeemer. This, this is a praise only his people can offer to him. When he says that, that God has raised up a horn for his people, he's using an image of strength. It was a symbol of strength, often for a leader or a deliverer in Israel's history, who, in a time when they, they were under the, someone else's thumb, like the time of the judges, and they needed some help, the Lord would give them a leader who could, who could raise up an army and throw off those who were oppressing them. God raises up deliverance for his people when they have nowhere else to turn. That's what the psalmist has in mind. 
Only humans can know what it is to have a God who listens when they cry out to him. A God who, as verse 14 puts it, is near to them, providing and protecting. Israel had experienced this over and over again. They experienced it in the judges, and they experienced it through David. But, but we know, as believers, we know ultimately what this psalm points us to. This horn raised up for his people, that's, a, that's, a, that's an image that's picked up at the very beginning of Luke's gospel. When Zechariah is, is looking at his own son, John the Baptist, and the one that his son would then would, would prepare the way for, he describes him as a horn raised up for God's people, a horn who would deliver them from all that oppressed them and from even their own sins. John 1 talks about Jesus like this. Same imagery. Jesus as, as the word of God who was always with God, but who is now taken on flesh so that we could see his glory, full of grace and truth. A word that comes to be a, a lamb that would be slain for the sins of his people. Only God's people can know that this good God, whose majesty shines in the sun, has veiled himself in flesh, just like ours, was perfectly obedient in every way, and died for the forgiveness of his people, if they would only trust in him. And 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us why he did all of that. 1 Peter 2 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has created us and God has redeemed us so that we will know that God is good and offer him the praise nothing else in this world can offer to him. There's the music. We've seen the choir. We've seen the song that it is partly our job to write as humans. And now I want to show you one last layer to this psalm. One last piece of insight into your role as a human made in God's image. I want to show you finally the conductor. The conductor. That's the role that this psalmist is playing. He's playing the role of conductor. He's calling out the instruments and the voices section by section, note by note, at just the right time and in just the right ways. Look back over the psalm. You can see him doing it. He, he calls for praise from the heavens. He calls on the heights. He calls on the angels. He calls on their hosts. He calls on sun and moon, on shining stars, verse 3. He calls on great sea creatures and all deeps, verse 7. Fire and hail, snow and mist. Imagine him as, a, as one of those bouncy conductors with the hair flying wild and crazy, calling on them at exactly the right time. And by the time he gets to verse 9, he's, he's even stopped telling them to praise. He's just saying, mountains, your turn. Fruit trees and cedars. Beasts, livestock, creeping things, flying birds, kings of the earth, all peoples, princes, rulers. You see what he's doing? He's just gotten caught up in it. He's just flying now. He's the conductor. But here's the thing. This psalm is not just one writer's prayer. It wasn't a private journal that he kept of, of a morning where he was just really caught up with the beauty of everything. This psalm was written, and then this psalm was included in this collection of psalms so that Israel and so that we would have a song for us to sing. It was written to be put into our mouths and into our hearts and into our minds to shape our perspective on what our job is as human beings. 
when we read this psalm, we're the conductor. We're the ones called to call on everything to praise the Lord. We just want to see him praised everywhere by everything and by everyone. And friends, that is news you can take with you into your work, into your relationships, into your recreation, into your ministry to others, into every part of your life. And I want to take just the last few minutes that we have together to just fire at you a few examples of how this role of conductor can shape your life if you take it up. This could change how you engage with nature, for example. This week, uh, Lord willing, we will be taking an annual McCullough family reunion trip to the mountains of North Georgia. Uh, many of you will know that's a, a, a thing we look forward to every single year. We've been doing it for years and years. A lot of the McCulloughs come from their far-flung regions to gather in this one place in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains on a lake and just enjoy each other and this wonderful world God made. Hopefully, we're going to get to do that this week. Um, and every day, in a host of ways, when I'm on that trip... When I'm in that special place, surrounded by all those people, I'm going to have a chance to embrace what it means to be human. Here's what I mean. Lord willing, we'll get to do a couple hikes on the Appalachian Trail. That's always a highlight of this trip for us. We always try to find a new stretch to take. Whatever amount my kids are up, to, up for by that stage in their life development, and maybe a nice shelter we can spend the night in on the Appalachian Trail. And Lord willing, as we hike whatever section we end up hiking this year, we'll come to a place, maybe one of the wonderful balds along the top of these mountains, and, and the trees will clear, and we'll have a, a view from what are really just big hills further north into what you might call mountains. And when we stand there, looking at the hills to the ridge after ridge after ridge of mountains, in that view we'll have a chance to see him, to taste his goodness in what he has made. We'll have a chance when we stand there and look out to say, praise him, all you hills and mountains. Lord willing, at some point during that week, one or two of us are gonna catch a bass or two out of the lake. We're always fishing for largemouth bass in this particular lake, and every now and then we catch one. And if I get to catch one, I'll pull it up out of the water, I'll gently take the hook out of its mouth. I'll hold it up to the light. The sun will catch that gleaming side and a shade of green that no artificial source could ever match will pop out of that fish to my eyes. And in that moment, I'll say, praise him, you creature of the not-so-deep. He put that color into your side. When we get there, Lord willing, We'll be in Georgia, and it'll be peak peach season. My favorite fruit of all, hands down, tasting exactly like it's meant to taste when it is following the rules that God set for it and has been ripened on a tree in the right season and the right climate that he designed for it. That is a taste to praise the Lord for. I will bite into it one after another, and that juice will be running all down through my whiskers. And I will have a chance to say, praise him, you fruit trees. Praise him. I'll see that the Lord is good. Friends, this is the kind of praise we were made to give him. It takes a human to see his goodness in his greatness. 
Engaging with nature is not just a fun way to spend a weekend or get away from the busyness of life or quiet your mind and your heart, as good as it is for all of that stuff. That's not really what it's for. As Christians, it's meant for worship. We were were created to call forth the kind of praise nature was created to give to him. And it can be an important spiritual discipline for us to, on purpose, intentionally remove ourselves from a time, from the busyness of everything we've got going on, and even from from these wonderful cities and neighborhoods that we live in where we're surrounded by, by reminders of human achievements, as wonderful as they are, and, and get out into a place where we have no one to credit but the God who made it all and who set the rules by which it operates and who calls on us to see and know that he is good. We could think about engaging nature as a wonderful spiritual discipline that helps us embrace our humanity. This view of yourself as a conductor who calls on other things in the world to praise the Lord, you know, it could also affect how you work at school. Kids, I know it's a little cruel for me to bring up school when you're in the middle of your summer, try not to think about it. Uh, but you guys bear with me for just a minute because I, 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 what I want you to see in this psalm, even though hopefully you don't have to worry about it for another month or two, is that when you work hard at school, you're not just learning about the world and you're, you're not just jumping through whatever hoops one grade after another has put in front of you just so you can get over with it. You're learning what you need to know to do what God made you to do. You're learning about why God is worth praising. Do you know when you study math, you're learning the amazing things you can do with numbers because God set up the world to work by his rules? You know these numbers, they can solve real problems. Not just problems written down on paper that the teacher gave you to solve. I mean like real problems in the world. They can help you, help people. God made it to work that way. And when you study science, no matter what kind of science, uh, from the dinosaur bones to space travel, no matter what kind of science you're studying, did you know you're studying the world God made and how it operates and what's in it? The more you learn about this world, the easier it'll be to point out how wonderful he is. That's what you get to do when you're at school. And while we're talking about kids, we may as well talk about parents. You know, this, this role God has given to us as humans to be conductors of his praise, that is exactly relevant to your job as parents. I'm not talking just about in family devotions, any kind of like specific or or formal or official time where you as a family look into the word and try to understand God. It's so helpful to do that. Something really important to do. But I'm talking about all of it. All of your time with your kids. We could see our job as being their tour guide into a world that shows God's goodness and beauty everywhere. Think of yourself as like a, a, a docent in an art museum where you're, you're pointing out the pictures and the beauty and what's there, something that might not be seen if you're not used to it. That's your job with your kids every day in every context that you find yourself. Same thing, if, uh, this role affects how we pursue evangelism and missions. You know, earlier we talked about uh, our team coming from our church to, uh, to, to over to Turkey to help train workers who are taking the gospel to places that don't have it. You know how we're spending all that money? You know why we're sending so much of our money to places that are sending workers that are, to, 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 to people who don't have access to the gospel? We're doing that because we believe there are people out there who are made with the capacity to know God's goodness and to praise him for it that don't yet know him, who don't yet know it's his goodness they experience in this world. 
who don't yet know about the horn of salvation that he's raised up in Jesus. They don't yet know how near to him they could be if they would trust him. I I love the way that John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, sums up what missions is for. He says that missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. So missionaries, evangelists, whether you're doing it in your neighborhood or doing it on the other side of the world, you're kind of playing the role of conductor. You're trying to offer to that potential choir member a song they could sing if they would so that he gets the praise that he deserves from all of us. We want more and more and more worship. And that's why we go. And friends, this, this could shape how you come to church too. You know, when we come together as a church each week, we come here to do what we were made to do. We come here to do what it takes a human to do. We come here to recount to one another all around this room the goodness and greatness of God. That's what these songs are for. We don't come here to to be inspired by what happens up front. We come here to serve each other all around the room by what each one of you brings. Because when we come... By being together and praising together, we're able to praise him in a way we couldn't all by ourselves. And we're able to call for praise from him, for, of him, in a way that we couldn't by ourselves. You know it's a different thing to praise the Lord with friends around than it is to do it by yourself. In the same way that it's a different thing to hear music played at a concert rather than just on your phone speakers. In the same way it's, it's different to to watch a great ending to a sporting event that you have a stake in when you're all by yourself on your couch versus watching that same ending with 80,000 other screaming fans as happy as you are with streamers and drinks flying all around you and strangers hugging strangers everywhere you look. It's a different thing. And that difference is not just that it's a more immersive experience. It's When it comes to the local church, it's that I can see the goodness of God through you in a way I couldn't on my own. Friends, in this very room right now, we've got members who are in their 80s that will sing next to kids who aren't yet eight. We may not have any of the kings of the earth that Psalm 148.11 talks about, but, but we've got members here who are wealthy by historical standards, sitting next to members who are struggling to get by. Both are praising the Lord who provides for them. We've got members here in this room who have lived in Nashville their whole life. They've never lived anywhere else. And we've got members who were born on the opposite side of the world as far away from here as you could possibly get. And when we gather here each Sunday morning, we'll have members who are here in mourning and we will have members who are here in rejoicing. And, and Lord willing, in, in many cases, we will know who they are and we will know why they're hurting and we will know why they're rejoicing. And when we look at them singing, we will hear their voices singing from that place. Now, We are experiencing the praise of the Lord we were made for in a way we could not possibly experience unless we were together. And we are taking up our calling from Psalm 148 to call for praise when we sing our song to our friends who are all around us. We come here for what we can give and we come here for what we can get in the praises that we sing to God and to one another. We're just living out Psalm 148 week after week after week. And friends, when we do that together, you know we're not just fulfilling our purpose as humans. We're also tasting our future. 
each Sunday in our own humble way, when we gather right here and when we sing to one another all around this room, we get a little bit of a taste of a new world that's been promised to us. One that'll be free of sin and free of sorrow in all its ugly forms. And that new world that we're tasting will be a world of perfect and unbroken and unclouded praise. When you hear that at a, at a glance or from a distance, it can sound kind of boring. Like for the rest of all eternity, a, a, a time scale we can't even imagine, all we're going to be doing is, is praising. But really, friends, just the opposite is true. We, we, will, we will spend eternity praising because we won't have room in our hearts for anything else. We will be so absorbed by the goodness of God that all we'll be able to do is reflect it back to him. There is a, there is a restaurant that my wife and I just love down on the Gulf Coast. We go there once, if not twice a year. And we, when we get down there, we always go one-on-one uh, as a date. But I'll be honest, it's not actually a great date spot because this food is so good that we just sit there eating it bite by bite, saying over and over again, this is so good. This is so good. Even the salad is good. You know, it starts with the salad. It's got this house dressing. We don't even know what's in it. We can't crack the code. It's just so good. It's perfect. And then the, and then the course by course, it comes. It's, there's this crab cake appetizer just full of big chunks of crab, you know, and just the right seasoning on the breading that ties it all together. And this sauce drizzled all over it. The sauce. We would go just for the sauce. And so we eat it bite by bite, and we just think, oh, it's good. And we say that to each other. And then the main course gets here, and it's this blackened grouper, this fish on top of a cheese grit cake with sautéed spinach. You'll just have to trust me. You've never had anything anywhere close to as good as that fish dish always is every time. And so we eat it bite by bite, and we say, this is so good. And that's all before the bread pudding comes. You know, with the special sauce and the homemade whipped cream? It, you guys get, get the point. During that meal, we don't talk much about how we're doing in life or about the goals we have for our kids or about how troubled we are by whatever it is that's weighing us down when we get there. We're not as exhausted as we normally are. That meal is usually going to be unclouded because for a few minutes at least... We are completely absorbed with what is completely wonderful and we praise because that's the only move available to us. And that is what heaven is going to be like. In heaven, this God who raised up a horn so that he could be near to his people will not just be near to them in the temple, not just near to them in their hearts, near to them visible we will see him as he is and when his greatness and his goodness come together in our own direct unmediated experience we will have one move left because we'll be completely absorbed we will praise him we will praise him 
We will praise him. We will praise him. We will praise him. We will call on others to praise him. We will remind each other why to praise him. We will experience again why to praise him. And we will praise him and praise him forever. And right here this morning in our own little way, we've done that. And now we'll do it again. Let's pray together now that the Lord will help us, that he will tune our hearts to sing his praise. Father, we... We come to you as our maker and our redeemer and offer you the praise that you deserve as the humans you made to know it. And we pray only that you would give us hearts that are more completely absorbed by your goodness, words that are more appropriately framed to capture who you are, and more and more fruit in our attempts to call each other and anyone in our path to praise you and you alone. We want to be a community marked by praise, embracing what it is to be a human made in your image. And we pray that you would do that work in us, even right now, as we rise to praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.